Welcome to Policy Matters. We are Franz Buscher and Matt Dixon, and today we're going to be talking about the role of education in social mobility. We're joined today by Dr. Lindsay McMillan, who's a reader in economics at the UCL Institute of Education. Lindsay, thank you for being on the program. So Matt and I spent a lot of time in the last program talking about the concept of social mobility, what is intergenerational transmission, why should we, why should we care about this? And kind of what were the trends in sort of the recent history in the UK about uh, intergenerational mobility. Uh, and I think today we ended the program talking loosely about education and the role of education in this entire sort of transmission mechanism. And uh, I guess just to kick things off, in your view, number one, why would the average listener care about these kind of things? And two, what in your experience or in your research have you found is the role of education in social mobility? Thanks very much. Um, I think the average listener would care about this because education is um, something that we all take part in and we all have an interest in. It's also one of the biggest policy levers that government has with regards to doing anything about trends in social mobility. In terms of our research, we did a study back in 2007 looking at the role of education in social mobility, um, well, particularly in intergenerational income mobility, and we were using a broad range of skills from early life, educational attainment at school, higher education, and then labour market attachment. And we found that this broad range of skills from across the early part of life could account for up to 50% of the transmission of incomes across generations. So in the UK, it's an important transmission mechanism across generations. Yeah, I remember that paper, and I think uh, you looked at how that had changed over time and, and from the kind of late people born in the late 50s and people born in 1970, and the relationship between education and mobility, that had strengthened, I think, is that right? That's right. Well, what we found was that the role of education could account for about 80% of the decrease in wow. mobility over the cohorts. We split this into different parts. The first part is the relationship between family income and childhood and your educational outcomes, educational inequality, essentially. Yeah. And the second part is the relationship between educational outcomes and labour market earnings, so the returns to education in the labour market. And then the remaining component is the direct association between parental income and child's earnings as adults. And we found that um, of the increase in relationship between incomes across generations between the, the 58 and the 70 cohort. All of this was being driven by the increase in family incomes relationship with education. So educational inequality essentially was getting worse over this time period. The returns to education were actually remaining broadly stable. Okay, so it's the fact that children from parents with more income were getting better education and that relationship was strengthening and that's what's led to kind of mobility falling over those generations. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So inequalities between children from richer and poorer families were getting wider in terms of educational outcomes, and that was contributing to those from poorer families being more likely to be poor as adults. I just want to pick up on something you said there about this sort of the 50%, and, and I, I looked at one of your most recent research papers from 2017, where again you explore this kind of what we call the OED relationship, this origin, destination, you know, uh, mediated through education. But, you know, the results there still show that there's a large component of the intergenerational transmission mechanism, whatever that may be, that we can't really account for. So, yes, I hear you on one side. You're saying education is very important and we'll obviously have a longer talk about the various types of education that we have in this country later. But on the other hand, there also seems to be quite a lot missing that we don't fully understand. You know, what is that and how does that work? 
That's definitely true, Franz. A paper we did comparing the UK, the US and Sweden, for example, found that actually it was the part not working through education that was the most important contributor to differences in mobility rates across countries. And what is this is a very good question. Uh, a lot of it can be things which are happening in the labour market, for example, um, within educational groups. So comparing individuals with very similar education experiences, having different experiences in the labour market by family background. But it can also be distinctions within educational measures that we're using. So, for example, we can look at whether individuals have got degrees or not, but there's a lot of difference in outcomes dependent on where you did your degree, what subject you did your degree in. The same is true at right. A-levels and at GCSEs. So this is the kind of, if you're not whole lot, you know, do you have a degree from Oxford or from some other university? Exactly. So it's, it's all about the way in which people from different backgrounds are operationalizing education in different ways. So we talk a lot about education, but actually we, we often talk about it as if it's just blocks of learning and they're all the same, there's no difference, but there's a lot of difference behind the kind of surface of having a degree or having A-levels, where you did those, what university you went to, what degree you did, and even within schools, secondary schools, there's a whole range of educational experiences. And so maybe boiling it down to different qualifications hides quite a lot of difference uh, that can be part of that education. Precisely. John Goldthorpe from Oxford talks about this in terms of education being used as a positional good. So essentially uh, people from different backgrounds use education in a different way. More affluent families are more able to use education to gain more of an advantage by knowing the right routes to go down, by knowing which subjects to take, for example. So a recent study we did looking at changes in educational inequality over time said something interesting related to this, which was that educational inequality has actually been improving, so the gap between richer and poor children, since those born roughly around the end of the 1970s, has actually been closing. So this is the educational gap? This is the educational attainment yeah. gap. Yeah, so At, In standard levels, levels such mm. as GCSE attainment, A-level attainment, proportion participating in higher education, um, also proportion getting the standard achievement at key stage two, for example. So the educational inequality gap seemed to be increasing, decreasing sorry, across the life course. But actually, when you look at more um, firm measures of quality, so proportion attending a Russell Group institution, for example, or proportion of people taking subjects which make up the English baccalaureate at GCSE or people studying facilitating subjects at A-levels, then the educational inequality gap there in those particular measures is not decreasing. So that's indicating that while the general level of educational inequality has been declining over time, that it's not actually closing, the gap is not closing for kind of firmer measures of educational attainment. So that's very interesting. Is that kind of suggesting the fact that although in the general statistics one might see some sort of closure, the, well, let's call them the elite <laughs> people sort of at the upper end of the socioeconomic spectrum keep finding, I don't know, new ways to, you know, to gain, to keep their competitive advantage? Precisely. That's, that's exactly the idea and that is supportive of John Goldthorpe's positional good kind of theory reg regarding education. So education, you know, and human capital generally is obviously a very important transmission of socioeconomic status across generations, but it comes with caveats. I guess we can think about the different levels of education, so how differences in attainment are present quite early across different family background types, and then that develops over schooling. So the early years and 
primary schooling, already we're seeing gaps emerge between children from poorer backgrounds and and better off backgrounds. And uh, those tend to grow, I think, over primary schooling. I think, is that something that you found in your research? Yeah, so numerous people have have looked into early years education as being an important area where gaps start to develop between children from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Leon Feinstein did some work back in the early 2000s where he showed that as early as 22 months you see gaps between children from different backgrounds. And James Heckman in the US has done a lot of work to show that there's really quite substantial gaps between children from different backgrounds that emerge very early on. Some research we did recently using the uh, National Pupil Database, the administrative data that's available in the UK, shows that these gaps uh, begin on entry to school, probably existing before that even, and get wider and wider throughout school as you go on. If you track pupils from low SES backgrounds compared to high SES backgrounds, even comparing high-achieving children, so children who are doing particularly well at Key Stage 1, for example, low SES children tend to fall behind. So that's low socioeconomic status? Low so socioeconomic poorer status. Families, so poorer, poorer children tend to fall behind their more affluent peers between ages 11 and 14 in this data. So these attainment gaps are growing between age 11 and 14. So I guess at age 11 you're starting secondary school. So it suggests it's something to do with children from poor backgrounds, even if they're doing well from primary school, something about their secondary school experience leads to this um, divergence in attainment. That does seem to be the case. Uh, When we just compared children within secondary schools, so we controlled for the the secondary school that children attended, many of these gaps disappeared, essentially. So a lot of this was to do with the school that they went to at secondary school. Now, it's impossible to separate out whether they're sorting into different types of schools or whether there's something else going on but but something about the the secondary school experience is is leading children from poor backgrounds to end up doing not so well as children from better off backgrounds even when they start with about the same level of attainment precisely i have a question here sort of bringing it back to sort of you know the government and the policy at the moment uh going back a year and a bit theresa may was very big on grammar schools the introduction of new grammar schools into the country especially in kind of shall we say areas where perhaps socioeconomic status is not quite so high um and that's dropped a little bit but i read some of your work that that made some interesting sort of observations about access to these kind of schools that it's just incredibly difficult for children from poorer economic backgrounds to, one, access to school, but even if they have the required grades, they're still at a disadvantage. So children from higher socioeconomic backgrounds need, on average, much lower grades to get into a grammar school. So my question to you is here, really, you know, government, Theresa May, are quite supportive of this idea that grammar schools are one way out, perhaps to close the gaps that we've been talking about. What's, what's your opinion of this? I think it's fair to say that all of the academic research regarding grammar schools is in agreement that grammar schools don't promote social mobility. There's two different aspects of the research to take into account. The first one, as you say, is access to grammar schools. Access to grammar schools is by no means equal. So we looked at the proportion of children from different socioeconomic backgrounds that were getting into grammar schools. And I think just to give you some figures only six percent of children from the tenth the bottom tenth percentile of the socioeconomic status distribution were attending grammar schools in selective areas at the nine yeah sorry sorry the 90th percentile 
there was about a 50-50 chance of people wow. getting into a grammar school. And for the 99th percentile, so the richest 1%, the chances of attending a grammar school was 80%. So obviously there's a relationship between socioeconomic status and prior attainment at primary school. People from more affluent backgrounds, as we've said, have higher educational attainment by age 11. These gaps start to appear very early. But even when you're comparing individuals, pupils at age 11 with the same performance in Key Stage 2, so that's the exam that people take at the end of primary school, if you compare two children, one from a low socioeconomic status family and one from a high socioeconomic status family, who both got at the 80th percentile of Key Stage 2, the one from the high SES family has a 70% chance of attending a grammar school and the one from a low SES family has a 25% chance of attending a grammar school. So it's a huge difference for children who essentially have the same level of ability but just the family background exerts a huge factor in terms of who gets into the grammar school. So that's one thing, the access to the grammar school. What does the research suggest about uh, what grammar schools do for attainment? I understand it's a bit of a mixed picture. So in terms of outcomes, um, there are a few interesting studies recently, one of which, Matt, you've co-authored <laughs> on, That's which um, look at inequalities in different outcomes. A study back in 2006 looked at GCSE outcomes. Uh, a study that we did recently, Matt, looks at earnings as an outcome in the labour market. And a very recent study that we've done looks at higher education outcomes. And all of them say the same thing. If you come from a selective area and you're high performing, you've done well, you've essentially attended a grammar school, yeah. then your outcomes are going to be much better than individuals who are similarly high performing from non-selective areas. But if you miss out on attending a grammar school in a selective area, then your outcomes are far worse than those mm. that are of a similar level in a non-selective area. So what the grammar school system does essentially is it exacerbates inequalities in outcomes for those from those who make it in and those who don't make it in. I think it's a bit of a, uh, one of those zombie policies that uh, despite what the research says, it's one that politicians keep coming back to because of this idea that it will accelerate social mobility. But I guess given these research findings taken together, the fact that poorer children are much less likely to go to grammar schools and then if they don't go to the grammar school, they end up doing worse than similar children from similar backgrounds but living in areas where they don't have grammar schools, where there's comprehensive schools. It really means that actually this is really regressive uh, for social mobility. It's really not uh, a positive thing. It, it's it's um, a step backwards. The other thing that, you know, in terms of policy relevance is what people forget, I think, about grammar schools is that by definition only the top, say, 25% can get in, in terms of attainment or whatever you think yeah. it's judging access by. If only the top 25% of people can get in, there's going to be a lot of voters whose children are not going to get into grammar schools and who are going to be experiencing the unwanted consequences of the schooling system that exists when you have selective education. So many, many years ago, when I first started out as a researcher, I was dabbling kind of political politics, political sort of voting behavior a little bit. And there is a theory called the Poom theory, prospect of upward mobility. And it's interesting that you bring up these grammar schools, because when this was in the news and, you know, BBC News was kind of, you know, doing one-to-one -one interviews with people on the street, the average Joe, a fair amount of people said, yeah, yeah, I really like this idea, you know, let's have grammar schools in my area, I want my kids to be successful, because more people think that they will be better off tomorrow 
than people who think they'll be worse off tomorrow. So this is kind of inbuilt behavior in people that they think, yes, my child will make it into the grammar school. Yes, I will be richer tomorrow. So because they can predict the future, well, they think they can predict the future, already right now, their voting and political stance becomes slightly more right-wing. So they start supporting things like grammar school, they're against redistribution policies, because although today they might be poor or underqualified, all this kind of stuff, or their children, tomorrow, they think, is their time. So this is kind of inbuilt thing where people can't fully understand the, you know, you were saying, you know, the chances involved and, you know, the realistic prospects of, of achieving something within this kind of system. So I guess moving on from secondary education, Lindsay, let me ask you the question, what is the role of kind of higher education? We've been through the kind of the primary, the secondary. It suggests to me that a lot of decisions, a lot of outcomes in life are already kind of determined by the time you're 18 and you're sort of moving up into higher education. Can the higher education sector still do anything to correct these inequalities, to improve mobility? Sure. I mean, so as you say, there are already large inequalities by the time you reach university. And that plays out in terms of the data. Some studies um, from the Institute of Fiscal Studies has shown that there is unequal access to university by people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And this is particularly pronounced, I think, if you look at access to Russell Group Universities, high-status institutions, as they call them. A lot of this can be explained by things that have happened earlier in the schooling system. So if you condition on a range of earlier measures of attainment, such as A-levels and GCSEs and performance at primary school, then this can account for a lot of the gap in access to higher education. I think some of the gap does still remain, not much. There's a small gap, I think. So when you compare children who get the same attainment, generally the children from poorer backgrounds will go to university at about the same rate, but there is a still, there's a bit of a gap, so they're not going quite as much and not to the higher status universities. I think that's been pretty constant over quite a long time. The different fees that there have been over the years, that doesn't seem to have impacted that. You still get this gap in who goes to university and and who goes to the high-status universities. I think uh, going back a little bit to the subject choice issue that we were talking about earlier, an interesting thing that came out of that research um, was that actually a lot of this gap was being driven by the subject choices that people were making at GCSE and A-level. So people from different backgrounds are selecting into different types of subjects um, and different types of qualifications. So it's not the kind of the art versus the STEM versus the kind of humanity subjects you're talking about now? It's the idea of there being these kind of facilitating subjects, subjects that universities are particularly interested in, such as maths, maths in particular, actually. Maths and physics and... um, history these are kind of traditional classic subjects and I think there are kind of non-facilitating subjects as well right that you wouldn't necessarily um, realize were bad subjects to take for example if you want to do an economics degree doing A-level economics isn't actually a good choice you're much better off doing A-level maths Uh, and similarly there are you can do A-levels in accounting you can do A-levels in law but these are not particularly uh, good choices if you want to do accounting and you want to do law, particularly at the more high-status universities who prefer these facilitating subjects, uh, more traditional A-levels. And that, that sort of information is part of what we were talking about earlier, particularly with Goldthorpe's work and ideas of social capital and, and the kind of children from the better-off backgrounds, their families using the information that they have to maintain their position. This sort of information about good choice of A-levels 
that isn't necessarily something that all families will know and all children will know. And so it's really important that this information is out there because it's something that could potentially help to close that gap if people know the right subjects to take, depending on what university they want to go to and what course they want to study. That's exactly right. Uh, one of my PhD students, Catherine Dilnor, is just completing her PhD thesis and she's done a lot of work on subject choice in particular. So her first paper looked at socioeconomic gaps in subject choice at A-level. She classified subjects into facilitating more useful, less useful subjects and showed that there were big socioeconomic gradients, so big gaps between richer and poorer students in the choices of subjects that they were taking. And then her second paper showed that these different subject choices were associated with attending different ranked universities. So the more facilitating subjects you had, the more useful and the less less useful subjects that you had, the more higher status university you got into, essentially. So taking that together, it's showing that subject choice is a fairly s- substantial mechanism. It sounds like to me we have a fairly easy policy fix here. Like, like other European countries, you force children to do maths and English at their level. Um, it's one thing that always struck me as a quote-unquote foreigner, because I did A-levels myself, actually, that there was far too much choice. And also the choice are very limited. You know, traditionally in the old days, you know, you would take two or three A-levels and that was it. So you're immediately narrowing your options uh, by, by a lot. And I guess if you don't have that advice there of saying, you know, maybe you should consider math and physics and English or history, mm. you're kind of, I don't want to say stuck, but you're left with general studies and, uh, you know, sports psychology. That can, I guess, have... Uh, quite an impact down the line then other a levels are available um, (laughs) yeah i think and i think though we've talked about access to higher education but then even when people go um, particularly if we've got people from a poor background who go to the high status university um, and do a degree in economics or physics or or whatever it is then on graduation how do they get on uh, compared to children from better off backgrounds So there's been some evidence recently which has looked more at the labour market comparing individuals with very similar educational experiences from different social backgrounds. And as far as my reading of it goes, it seems to be fairly conclusive that individuals from poorer backgrounds are still penalised in the labour market even when they've got the same subjects from the same universities and the same prior educational experience as an individual from a richer background. So there was a really important study by Sam Friedman and Daniel Lorison using the Labour Force survey that showed within occupations individuals were being paid differently depending on their class background, the class pay gap as they called it. Mm. So there's something else going on. So even when you have a child from a poorer background, they get the grades, so they do the facilitating A-levels, they get the grades, they go to the high-status university, they do a degree, they get a good degree from one of these universities and they go into the labour market and still there's something else going on. And I think you've done some work as well looking at the sorts of jobs that people go into given the same degree and institution studied at. What did you find there? We found looking at access to jobs that individuals from poorer backgrounds with similar prior attainment, as you've as you've laid out, um, are typically accessing lower socioeconomic status jobs in adulthood. So they're typically going into the less professional jobs, whereas individuals from richer families, from private schools in particular, are accessing the professional jobs at a larger rate. Sounds to me like there's still a range of problems across the entire education spectrum to be looked at and solved. Final question, Resolution Foundation today talked about the citizenship inheritance. All millennials should get £10,000. 
Any thoughts? Are you still a millennial? Are you eligible for the 10 grand? <laughs> I think I'm actually called a zennial. Um, is that right? I think that is right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Somewhere between Generation X and a millennial. Uh, we don't identify as either. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think I think it's a sensible suggestion and it's one that's been made a few times now. Resolution Foundation is certainly not the first people to, to suggest such a fund. There's a million problems with inheritance generally. If you think about all of the um, wealth that's being accumulated that's getting passed down from grandparents to parents and so on, um, it's only going to be exacerbating these issues that we're talking about further. So I think any kind of fund that gives people more of a chance to start, then why not? So many thanks to Dr. Lindsay McMillan for joining us. I'm Franz Buscher. And I'm Matt Dixon. And you've been listening to Policy Matters. We'll be back soon with more.